0: As we begin chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 6, I believe these are some fitting verses and this is a fitting message for the last message of the year. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday of a new year should the Lord tarry and He see fit to give us life and bring us back here. But I believe that this text that we'll look at today is a fitting message as we close out the end of this year. So far, we've studied chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. And those chapters, they're very doctrinal in nature. Paul has been describing for us everything that we have in Christ, that we've been blessed, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, He's talked about what we were, but now what we are through Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. He's talked about how we've been reconciled, Jew and Gentile, into one body, the church. But now as we begin chapter 4 through chapter 6, they've become very practical in nature. As he's been talking about what we have in Christ, now he begins to kind of turn the page and turn directions and begins to tell us how we're to walk out what we have in Christ. He now begins to tell us how to live out our blessings. And so as we begin this fourth chapter of Ephesians, he begins a change of direction for the book, and that's what the word therefore in verse 1 tells us. It signals a change. And let me just say this, when you're studying the Word of God, anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to find out what it's there for. And so Paul is saying, as you look here in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, he's saying, because of what I've said, this is what I want you to do. And so this morning, as we dive into this text, there's three things I want you to notice that Paul tells us. The first thing that Paul tells us as we begin to dive into this book is this. You need to walk worthy of your calling. The first thing he tells us is walk worthy of your calling. We find this in verse number 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The first thing he tells us is walk worthy of your calling. The word walk, it refers to our conduct, our behavior. It refers to our manner of life. That word, broadly, it means to balance the scales. The word calling refers to our call to salvation. It refers to the invitation to come to Christ and be saved. And so Paul is saying that we should live in a way, live in a manner that fits the calling that we have received. He's saying that as believers we're to live in balance with our calling. In other words, how we act should match what we believe. Our behavior should match our belief. You see, Paul wants us to understand that our practical living should match our spiritual position. That because we've been saved, because we've been redeemed, now we should act like we've been saved and act like we've been redeemed. We should walk worthy and live lives that match our calling and match our position in Christ. That if we've been redeemed and forgiven and chosen and adopted into the family of God, now you're to live it out and walk like God has changed your life. He's arguing that now, because we're children of God, we're to live in a way that shows others we've been made new in Christ. You see, people should see the influence of God's Spirit in us by the way we live. You see, the Bible tells us that we've been made new in Christ, that the old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And so when we live in this world, people should see that we've been made new, that now we're no longer what we used to be, but we've been made new. And now we're to walk differently than the way we used to walk. We're to walk worthy of the calling that we have been given. You see, whether you realize it or not, people are watching you. They're evaluating you really what you say you are. They're going to evaluate whether or not you really are a child of God. You see, people are looking at how we conduct ourselves to see if there's been a change in our lives. See people are going to look at you, look at me, and they're going to come to a conclusion if we really have met Jesus. You see, they're going to look at your life and my life to see if we're just going to talk the talk and walk the walk. You see, you can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. You've got to walk worthy of the calling. You see, there's a particular way to live our lives for this calling. What does that mean? That means you don't get to be a Christian and act how you want to act and do what you want to do. See, we're to live lives that reflect our new identity in Christ. As I've already said, you become a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away and everything has become new. So you can't keep doing what you've always done and say that you're a new creature in Christ. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul talked about us being dead in sin and how we were depraved and lived according to the ways of this world we followed after Satan because he's the God of this world and we followed after the passions of the flesh that's the former walk but now we have a new walk and so the new walk can't go back to living for the flesh the new walk can't go back to following after our old passions and our old patterns our new walk can't go after the following the ways of the world Now we're to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we've been called. Because we've been chosen and redeemed and forgiven and accepted and made alive, we're to walk in line with what God has done for us. Now listen, I'm not talking about perfection because this side of heaven we in. Let me stop here and point out something that Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying that we should live lives that will be worthy or deserving of salvation. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you here. The way you live has nothing to do with the way you were saved. The way you live has nothing to do with the way you were saved. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace through faith, and there's no other way. You can't avoid enough sin, make enough hospital visits, read enough Bible, pray enough prayer, or give enough money to be saved. Is that clear? You can't walk in a way that honors God in your own strength and in your own power and hope that that's going to be enough that you can walk your way into heaven. If you haven't accepted the gift of grace, there'll be no grace at all. If you haven't accepted the gift of salvation, there's no other way to be saved. Amen. It's quiet this morning. But listen, if you don't accept Jesus and His gift, there is no other way. I don't care how good you walk. I don't care how clean you live. If you reject Him and the gift He gives, there is no other way. You'll miss it. And you can try to dot all the religious I's and cross all the religious T's you want to, but if you reject Jesus and His grace, you miss it. And let me just say, there's going to be a lot of people who sit on pews week after week and they're dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and they're going to miss it. And I don't say that to try to uh, rub people the wrong way, but Jesus said, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to say, we've prophesied, cast out demons, and done many wonderful works in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. to strike the fear of God in us. That we can do a lot of good things for Him. And he say, I don't know you. My hope alone is in Jesus. Because my righteousness is as filthy rags. If I have any hope of heaven, it's the hope of Jesus and what He's done for me. But here's the thing. I don't walk right to get to heaven I walk right because he's done something for me hallelujah I don't walk right and live worthy to be saved I walk right and I live worthy because I am saved Amen? Because he's made a difference. Because he's made a change. That's why I live differently. That's why I live like I've been changed. I don't try to earn the love of God by walking worthy. I don't try to earn the love of God by walking differently. I walk differently because I am loved by God and because he has done something in my life. That's what you got to understand. You walk worthy because He's done something for you, not to get what He's wanting to do for you. You see, when you understand what God's done for you, you'll naturally want to live a life that's worthy. You'll want to say no to the world. You'll want to say no to sin because of what God's done for you. But let me say this before we go to the next thing. Paul is urging us here To live worthy. He says, I urge you, I beseech you, I plead with you to walk worthy of the calling. So to me that says, it's possible to not walk worthy of the calling you've received. It is implied, I believe from the text, that you could receive this calling and walk in a way that's not worthy. Could it not? If he's pleading, urge, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. They could have been possibly not walking worthy of the calling they had received.
1: I would say to us today that maybe we need to evaluate our lives,
0: examine our lives to see whether or not we are walking worthy of the calling we have received. Because for him to give them Maybe not so much a commandment, but begging them to examine their lives. It's possible to not walk worthy. Because here's the thing: the way you walk, the way you live, it's your choice. And it's my choice. And I believe that if we don't walk worthy of the calling that we have received, we're going to quench the Holy Spirit. We're going to grieve Him. We're going to undergo God's discipline and chastening in our lives. Listen, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But you're going to get disciplined by God. You're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. You're going to feel like a lost man or a lost woman. And you're going to be a terrible witness for Jesus. We're to walk worthy our calling. It's important. Amen? But a second thing he points out to us here in this text is that we need to adopt the right attitudes. He says, you've got to have the right attitude to walk out your calling and to walk worthy of it. He gives us the attitudes in verse number 2. He tells us to walk worthy of the calling that we've received and he tells us how. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Basically, he's telling us here that to walk worthy of our calling, it deals with how we treat other people. Because he's been on this thought and idea of Jews and Gentiles being reconciled, being brought into one body, the church. And now they're to walk worthy of their calling, walk in unity. And you're to do it with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love. Let's look at these real quickly. Humility. If you have a King James, it says long-suffering. The word means an accurate understanding of your own moral smallness. Humility is the opposite of conceit and arrogance. Humility makes us conscious of our own nothingness and enables us to esteem others better than ourselves. You see, humility doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves. It means we think of ourselves less. That's what humility is. Now in the world, humility, it's often viewed as negative, isn't it? It was in that day. Some people see humility as an indicator of low self-esteem. But we know as God's people, we know as Christians, that God gives grace to the humble. He gives favor to the humble, but He opposes proud. He says you're to have gentleness. Some translations say meekness. Some people see meekness and gentleness as, as weakness. That means Jesus would have been weak. Jesus wasn't weak. Gentleness or meekness it refers to power under control. It refers to having the power to react against others but refusing to do so for the sake of Christ. You think about a horse that's been tamed. They have the power to run free and to run loose, but they've been tamed. It's power under control, power under restraint. Sometimes it means that you've got to keep your mouth shut instead of setting someone else straight. It means being considerate of others, being kind and sweet toward others. John MacArthur said this. He said, a meek person is normally quiet, soothing, and mild-mannered, and he is never avenging, self-assertive, vindictive, or self-defensive. Does that describe you this morning? Well, let me tell you about a person who doesn't have gentleness or meekness. They'll constantly correct you. They'll try to demonstrate that they're superior than you. A person who doesn't have gentleness or meekness, they'll always blast at you. And here's how. The, and here. And they'll excuse it by saying, "I'm only being honest." They'll constantly remind you of your failures. But can I tell you a person that's experienced the grace of God will extend that same grace to others. A person that's gentle, they'll be soft rather than harsh. They'll be loving rather than combative. That's how we're supposed to be. Then he talks about patience. This is a difficult one for us, isn't it? We're an impatient people. We want things, we want them now. But patience means to endure with one another. It literally means to be long-tempered rather than short-tempered. It's the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. It refers to having a long fuse. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a long fuse or a short fuse? What does it take to get you riled up and irritated? Somebody once said this, and I like this. You can tell the size of a man by the size of the thing that makes him mad. It's power. You can tell the size of a man by the size of the thing that it takes to make him mad. What does it take to irritate you? What does it take to push your buttons and get you upset? You can tell the size of a man by the size of the thing it takes to get him mad. You see, the thing is, nobody's going to be perfect here on earth. We've got flaws, we've got imperfections, and that means as believers we've got to learn to be patient with each other. We've got to learn how to deal with each other's faults and be patient, Amen. In fact, let me say this. If we really understood how incredibly patient God was with us, we'd learn to be more patient with others. Do you understand how God is patient with you? How God puts up with your stuff? How God puts up with my stuff? And yet then we'll blast people when they get on our nerves. It's like a little t-shirt I saw one time. I've got one nerve left and you're on it. How I many has ever felt like that? I've got one nerve left and you're on it. That's how we feel sometimes, isn't it? What if God was like that? Man, we'd all be in trouble. But God is incredibly patient. Because we fail Him and we fall time and time again. And yet God is still gracious and merciful and loving. We need to be more like Him and be patient. But then He tells us here this last thing, bearing with one another in love. That phrase bearing with, it means to endure or put up with. The New Living Translation says it this way, we're to make allowance for each other's faults because of love. The New American Standard translates it, we're to show tolerance for one another in love. Paul is basically saying, because of our love for each other, you're to tolerate each other and put up with each other. How many of you know that sometimes, when it comes to loving people, you've got to learn to endure people. You gotta to tolerate people. But here's the thing says to bear with one another in love in other words it's not just tolerating people for the sake of tolerating people in other words it's not me putting up with you and then me resenting you at the same time on the inside it's me putting up with you and doing it in a spirit of love and guess whose kind of love that is it's the word agape in Greek it's God's kind of love it's an unconditional love and it's a love that does not end That means even when you hurt me and offend me, I'll still put up with you. Even when you irritate me and you get on my nerves and you do things to hurt me or even say things that I don't like or do things that I don't like, I'll still bear with you in love. Now here's the thing, I can't do it in my love because my flesh wants to tell you off but in God's love working in me. The love of God has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit because of His love working in me and through me. I can bear with you. And you can bear with me. And we can bear with one another. Amen? That's how we get along. That's how we do church. By learning how to bear. You, you, you We've got to have these attitudes to have unity. And to put up with each other And to have church. Listen, if you didn't have these attitudes, you couldn't do church on Sunday morning. Right? You've got to have these attitudes. Especially in that day, Jew and Gentile, they had to have these attitudes. But listen, we're living in a day where racism and prejudice abounds. It's not as bad as it used to be but listen, it's still a part of our culture. We live in the south. And we need to tear down walls of racism and prejudice and to do that you've got to have these attitudes. You see when we have these kinds of attitudes especially love we won't allow our differences to divide us. Because of love, we won't allow the irritations and inconsistencies of others to cause us to stop loving them. Because, listen, we all have irritations, things that get on the nerves of others, and we all have inconsistencies. But when there's genuine love for one another, and love for God, we'll keep on loving. Amen? But let me say this, because of love, we won't allow the faults and failures of others to cause us to look down on them that it said we'll be gracious. Because here's the thing. No one's perfect. That means we've got to still be loving. Here's what 1 Peter 4.8 says. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that love ignores, overlooks, or tries to hide sin. But it does mean we extend forgiveness and we seek reconciliation with one another. And it also means that we don't spread gossip about those that have fallen and failed. That when we become aware of what somebody has done, maybe how they've fallen, how they've messed up, because of love, we don't allow it to spread any further. Love covers a multitude of sins. Again, it's not ignoring it. It's not sweeping it under the rug. It's not neglecting it. But when we become aware of it, it stops with us. It goes no further because of love. That can't always be said of church people and churches. We're just as bad at gossip sometimes as the world is. That's being unloving. Let's look at First Corinthians 13 real quick because it gives us a great description of the love God wants us to have. Love is patient and kind. Think about that. When when I'm being impatient with people, when I'm being unkind, I'm being unloving. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the kind of love we're supposed to have. If we're going to have community and fellowship and unity in the body of Christ, we must have these four attitudes, but especially the attitude of love. That means we must be willing to give up our own self interest for the common good. Here's the thing as long as my feelings, my prestige, my interest are the things that matter, there'll be no peace, there'll be no fellowship. As long as it's all about me, there'll be no unity. As long as the focus is centered on you, there'll be no peace, and there'll be no fellowship. But let me give you one final thing here and we'll close. We're to work to maintain unity. This is the goal that we're supposed to pursue. We're to walk worthy of our calling. We're to adopt the right attitudes. Why? Because there is a the goal that we're supposed to pursue, and that goal is unity. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to walk worthy of. With all of these attitudes that he described, these four attitudes, why? So that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now notice something. Paul doesn't tell us to create unity. He tells us to maintain unity. He tells us to keep unity. You see, the Holy Spirit creates unity. When we accepted Christ, when we put faith in Him, guess what? We became reconciled. We became connected. We became united. We became one. We became the body of Christ. We became united. So we're not creating unity. It's already been created when we accepted Jesus and were placed in Him. We're now to maintain it. But here's the thing. Many times, instead of maintaining it, we destroy it. You see, our job, our focus is to maintain unity, not dismantle it. But notice something. Unity, maintaining it, it's hard work. He says, eager to maintain. The King James talks about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It requires effort to maintain unity. Why is that? Because we're human beings. And we don't naturally get along. I've got my agenda. You've got your agenda. I've got my way. You've got your way. And guess what? We're naturally selfish. So it's hard to maintain unity. So we've got to work at it. That little word eager, it means to make haste. It means to exert oneself. Some translations say you've got to be diligent to keep the unity. he talks about maintaining the unity, he says you've got to preserve it. You've got to guard it. You've got to take care of the unity of the Spirit. That means that the unity that the Spirit of God creates within the church, we've got to make sure that we do everything possible to make sure it's unhindered and unbroken. We've got to do everything within our power, in our ability, and through the help of the Holy Spirit to make sure the unity isn't broken. But how do we do it? Through the bond Of peace. You see, peace refers to harmony between individuals. And so what does this mean? It means that when we have peace with God, peace with each other should be the natural result. Because we're at peace with God, we should have peace with each other. Amen? Let me also say we can't have unity unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit. There is no unity without the Spirit of God. I not you also notice something else here. This duty doesn't f- uh, fall on the responsibility of one person. Many people think, well, it's the pastor's job to keep the unity in the church. No, it's not. It's the responsibility of everybody. I have a responsibility to try to love you and maintain unity, but you also have a responsibility to love your brothers and sisters and work on unity. We're all supposed to be about keeping unity in the church. Spiritual unity should be the concern of everybody here. We've got to strive to maintain the unity of the church. That means we can't allow our hurts to fester. We can't nurse our grudges. That means we've got to deal with bitterness, we've got to deal with unforgiveness, and we've got to learn to be peacemakers. Romans fourteen nineteen. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I hope this morning your desire is to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. I want to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Can I tell you what the biggest troublemaker in the church is? Your tongue. That's the biggest troublemaker in the church, is the tongue. It gets us into trouble and it stirs up all kinds of conflict. It, it destroys unity faster than anything else. We've got to be peacemakers. But I want to ask us a very important question and I've got to bring this to a close this morning. But why is it in the church we tend to act as if everything's fine when it's not? That's an important question to just think over and ponder, isn't it? Why is it that we always act as if everything's okay when it's not? And I tell you what I think the answer is? I believe it's because it's much easier to let things slide than it is to deal with it. It's much easier just to kind of sweep the problems under the rug than it is to face it head on. So sometimes, let me say this, our pride gets in the way and we don't want to have to apologize if we're the ones who did the offending. Let me also say this. Sometimes we don't want to have to be the ones who have to go to the person who's done the offending and do the rebuking. Listen, I'm all about loving people. But when you read what Jesus said, that if you have a problem with your brothers, your sister, you go to them. If they won't hear you, you take somebody else with you. If they won't hear them, you bring them before the church. Church discipline is laid out in the Word of God and how you deal with offenses and problems in the church. But we'd rather not deal with it, so let's just let it slide And when you let things fester and boil over, it just gets worse. A little leaven leavens the whole nut. Isn't that what the Bible says? It just creates bigger problems. Pastor, what if you confront someone who's done the offending? Well, you do it to hopefully stir them to repent of what they've done. if they don't repent you treat them like an unbeliever the point of confrontation is not to be divisive but it's to bring unity and repentance and if they don't repent you you treat them like an unbeliever preacher what if they leave well here's the thing the longer they stay the more problems they, they create you might get more than them leaving you might get multiple families leaving if they stay Does that make sense? Would you rather have one person leave over ten people leaving because of allowing one to not be dealt with? And listen, it's it's not a job I enjoy. I've I've had to do it. And I had a family leave at my first church. But if I had allowed them to stay, I would have had multiple families leave. And for the good of the body, I had to deal with one family. And it's not pleasant. And I was younger. I was in twenties then. And, and, I, and I, I may not have done it exactly the right way then. I was still learning. But my heart was to protect the flock. Now let me say this. I don't think everybody needs to go around rebuking everybody. I think if there's issues, I believe Leadership needs to do a lot of the correcting. Now if there's personal things between you and another member, I think maybe you need to take care of it. And if you can't handle it, then you start bringing in leadership. But these are things that have to be dealt with because the unity of the church, the unity of the body, is that important. David said how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. This is important. Because guess what? Satan wants to divide the church. He knows if we ever get on the same page, we'll be a force to be reckoned with. He'll not be able to hinder what God does. Church, we've got to protect the unity of the church. We've got to deal with offenses, deal with grudges, deal with bitterness, deal with hurts. Deal with people who create Problems. And I'm thankful I haven't had to deal with anything here. But we can't let things go. I want to read verses four through six real quick and we'll we'll close. But these are the reasons why we should strive for unity. He says there is one body. Not many bodies, one body. There's only one church. Maybe different denominations, but there's only one body. One spirit. Just as you were called to one hope. Listen, we all have one hope that we're looking forward to, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven things that He lays out there that unites us. We all have common ground. We all have common ground. Different backgrounds, different cultures but we stand on common ground. That's why we should strive for unity. So as we close, we need some personal evaluation to do. So number one, are you living in a way that you know you should live as a child of God? Are you walking worthy of the calling you have received? If not, what needs to change in your life? What needs to change in my life? Secondly, secondly, of the four attitudes that Paul mentioned, the humility, the gentleness, the patience, the bearing with one another in love, of those four attitudes that Paul mentioned, is there an attitude that you need to work on and cultivate? But number three, am I doing my part in working to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Or am I contributing to disrupting and dismantling the unity of the Spirit within the church? We need to evaluate ourselves this morning ask ourselves these questions to see where we are. Stand with me this morning.